0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 100 of the History Hotline. We've made it! 100 episodes in the bag. I can't really believe it. To think, what, two years and about six months ago this all started. And here we are today, 100 episodes done. Well, not yet because we haven't actually finished this one, but still. Um, It's quite surreal, I think. Um, Because... This was just a little idea that I had um, for a very long time because it was something I was procrastinating doing. I always wanted... It was a good few years, I'll be honest. I sat on this idea for a good few years of having some kind of platform to share some of the histories that I was encountering um, through my studies. And it took me a while to actually do something um, and for this all to come to fruition. And here we are now you know, March twenty twenty-three and you know, I've actually managed to talk about history things for a hundred episodes. For this hundredth episode, there were quite a few ideas I had in mind that people tend to do when they hit like a podcasting milestone. And one of them was doing like a combination of lots of clips from different episodes to make up this episode. And I thought about doing that. And I'll be honest, I thought logistically producing that would actually be a nightmare, so I said no. But also, I think these episodes, well, I hope anyway, that they aren't episodes that can just be clipped um, and you can be satisfied with just a 30-second or 20-second clip of an episode because there's so much context um, and backstory that goes into most of the histories that I tell. Um, And so I decided against that idea and I've decided that I'm going to reflect on my podcasting journey so far, Um, my educational journey and some kind of next steps and future plans um, for this podcast and I wanted to go back because I think essentially if you've been here for the the two and a half years that a lot of you have actually I'm, I'm really proud to say it's good to see some of the faces that were there in the beginning cheering me on thank you all um if you've recently joined or this is the first episode you're listening to welcome um and i guess this uh, this episode is for people that are are new or who have been around for a long time and have probably only heard me like piece together little bits of my educational journey and my background that's kind of led me up to this point of of doing a PhD and doing this podcast and speaking and kind of having a platform to talk about um, Black, British and Caribbean history. Um, So I kind of wanted to go into a little bit more depth about all of those things, the things I learned at school, the things I didn't learn and kind of how I got here essentially. So if you will humour me this one episode as I essentially give a little history of myself um, which feels very weird because that's not what this podcast was for Um, but as it is the 100th episode um, I thought I would get into into that history um, and talk to you about that story today. So how did the podcast come about? Now there's many ways I could tell this story because there's not really one singular influence that you know led me to create this and whenever I've like guest spoken on on other people's podcasts or I've done talks and things of that nature people always ask like why did you start it or in general conversation and I have given a like really short version of the story because you know nobody wants to hear me blabbering on but here we are on my podcast so I can tell you the story in full with all the elements and parts I'll probably forget some parts of it um but essentially I found this notebook today. I found it earlier this month, actually. But I was looking through it today. And I think it's from 2017, which is about six years ago. Um, And I wrote down that I was going to start a YouTube channel. Um, And I wrote down all the episodes that I was going to do. And I'll happily tell you, I've done most of them on this podcast. Um, And it was all about, actually, um, black women um um black women's history across the world. So I was looking at African American women, African women, Caribbean women, uh women and black Brita- black British women. And I had this idea and didn't really know how I would bring it to life on YouTube. Um but YouTube was really popular back then. I know it still is um for some people but when I was in school and at university, YouTube was a thing, you know, everyone was gonna start a YouTube channel. And I had that idea swimming around in my head and I think I'd seen other kind of YouTube channels um, like Crash Course that was doing a lot of like history content um, and other different kind of animated episodes um, that essentially create cartoon versions um, of histories to retell them. And I thought that was really cool, but not something that I could do. It wasn't within my capacity. I'm not an illustrator. can't draw to save my life, actually. Um, So that one kind of idea wasn't really developing for me and it was just all in this notebook Um, I didn't revisit the notebook uh, until 2020 I think Um, and that's when obviously the history hotline launched now the reason I wanted to look at black women in history is because I could see it was an area that was just so underserved um, when it came to historical narratives globally, not just in Britain. And at this point, actually, my knowledge of black British history was minimal. Um, I knew very little about it. And I'll come into how I actually started to know about black British history later. Um, But this is 2018, 2017, 2018. I'm in my third year of university. Um, One of the things that kind of came about from this work and this kind of detail planning I was doing for this YouTube channel that I didn't actually have yet um, was was thinking about black women and the lack of um, their stories in the history books and it was something that carried me all the way until I think 2019 uh, when my good friend Katie asked me to join her on her podcast called educate and if you've been around since then um the first podcast you will have heard me speak on was educate and i did two i think i did three episodes the first one i did um was looking at the lack of black women in history and the lack of black women in academia in Britain Um, and I think this episode came out in 2019 maybe or 2018 I think I recorded it in 2018 um, November if I remember correctly Um, but I started that episode with a quiz and it's a quiz that I do when I do corporate talks sometimes when I do school workshops or talks Um, and if you've Heard of me through any of those things, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but I ask people to write a list down. I give them a certain amount of time, normally about a minute um and I ask them to write down as many black historical figures as they possibly can in that minute. you know, and I obviously make it a nice, comfortable environment. I say there's no judgment here, it's not actually about how many people you can get down, although please try and do as many as you can. It's actually about. The kind of types of people you have on your list. I don't tell them that at the start, I tell them that afterwards. Um, Because what I'm actually looking at is not how many people they know, um, but where those people come from. Um, What regions of the world uh, are heavily populated in their lists, and what regions are completely left out? What genders are represented very well, and what genders are left out? Um, And When I've done this, there is always a pattern and I've done this over the years, you know, I'm talking over a good four or five years now. And there's always an absence of black women, especially within, I'd say, black Britain, um, looking specifically at the Caribbean and Africa, Um, African women so rarely feature on people's lists. Um, And then if there are black Caribbean women, they tend to be Mary Seacole. And then black women more broadly, it tends to be a very heavy focus on African-American women, Um, you know, the likes of Rosa Parks, Um, which is not necessarily a problem. Sometimes I'm happy that there are any black women on their list (laughs) at all. Um, But a lot of the time the black people that feature on these lists are african american um and it's something i've spoken about so much on this on this podcast that what we know of black history in britain is always focused on the struggles of african americans for equality and rights as if they're the only black people in the world that have been fighting and are fighting for equality for rights for freedoms uh for literal basic human rights in some cases um and so that was just a trend that I was constantly seeing and I still see um but what I hope to do with this episode was to counter that and to put into the public knowledge of these other figures um that wouldn't necessarily feature on people's lists because the public knowledge of black people in Britain is very limited You know, as I'm telling this story, I realised why I do this quiz with people. Because I did this quiz in my first literal week of university as an undergrad. Um, And I can't remember the lecturer, but I think the module was called Global Encounters. I mean, we'd look at literally different global encounters around the world. I wish I could tell you more about that module, but I really don't remember. Um, I just remember doing the Martyrs of Cordova which was in an area, it's in Spain. So as you can see, I remembered a lot from the first year, but I remembered this quiz and we did it in the first seminar. And I remember being really proud of my list because in fact, my list was in its majority black people Um And we did the same analysis. Um, I remember the lecturer asked us to look at the regions of the world that the majority of our people had come from on our lists and look at the gender of them and look at the types of um, figures they were, whether they were political figures or activists or whatever else. And that's where that kind of idea came from. And I thought it was a really nice way to start my undergrad degree, even though in some ways it was problematic because actually at university there weren't they didn't uh, teach me that much about some regions of the world It would have been nice to know about. That being said, some of the modules were there and I personally didn't pick them because I was a joint honours student and had to do English modules as well. But some regions really weren't catered to. Um, but I'm going to get into my education shortly. But I just wanted to start thinking about that quiz. Um, and I wonder, if you have a second and you want to pause this episode... Give yourself a minute and do that quiz yourself and see if you're a long time listener, your list really should be black British heavy. Um, but if you're not a long time listener, uh, maybe this is one of your first episodes and you haven't gone back yet, then maybe do this and then do it after you've listened to a few. And hopefully the aim of this podcast will be realised and achieved by educating people on some of the people that they wouldn't have necessarily known about. I think this is a good juncture to start talking about my educational journey um, and how we got to this point in that sense. And I will say, you know, I am here uh, in my mid-twenties, still a student, still studying. Um, I'm a lifelong learner, I think. I really, I enjoyed school. I loved school, all school, primary school, secondary school, uni. I loved Learning. I still love learning. I love reading. I love gaining new information, learning new things about the world and people. Um, And I think that's probably what's carried the curiosity um, of my studies and of this research for this podcast um, to this point. So I've enjoyed school from day one, to be honest with you. I didn't really have a tough time at school. I loved it. I'll be honest. Um, Primary school... Black history. I don't remember doing any except for the time that my nan came to school to teach us about Jamaica for Black History Month. And I think she volunteered. She was a teacher um, and had all the skills to engage primary school children um, for an hour or so. And she brought in like loads of different foods from the market, like yam, banana plantain, ackee, vegetables, fruit to kind of talk about Jamaican culture. And she spoke about the history. And I don't remember it, the whole presentation um, word for word. I actually don't know if she presented or I can't remember if she actually presented to my class I just remember at the end of the school day her being in my school and then we all went home together me and my brother because she'd done those lessons um and she was there um and I think that was kind of the first experience I had thinking about black history my own history um I probably have things that happened before that I just can't um recall but it was at that point that I kind of started, I guess, learning about my culture. Jamaica was a place that I would go to, um, see family, and it was where I knew I was from. Um, But that was kind of the extent of it, really. Um, I didn't really know in depth the history um, or anything like that. It was more culture and heritage, and obviously it being my own culture and heritage, making it easier in that sense. Um, And so at this point in primary school is where I went to a supplementary school a Saturday school as I'd call it Um, and I went every Saturday I can't remember for how long I think for a few years Um, we wouldn't do just black history there we would do maths English science and it did supplement the education we were getting in school as I said, I loved it because I like learning um, and all my cousins went there and like family friends. So it was really fun. Um, it wasn't the worst place to send, spend your Saturday. The alternative was helping with the food shop. So it was not something that I grumbled at too much. Um, but it was there where I started to to learn more about black history. But it wasn't necessarily packaged as anything political or Different. It was just like, oh, we're going to look at the history of a country like Nigeria today, which we did because one of my teachers there was Nigerian. And I remember him very clearly speaking about Nigerian history. Um, And so there was that. And I guess it's where I start understanding and learning that what we learn in school isn't actually the only thing that should be learned. It's not the most important bit of learning. School was important, but I think that instilled the value of you know education doesn't stop at 3 30 when you leave school you can still take things in and I think that's where a kind of love of learning comes from within me and then I went to secondary school and I went to an all-girls school and the feminist agenda loomed large it was very loud but looking back that wasn't necessarily a problem it was a good thing it's probably why I was going to start a Uh, YouTube channel that looked just at women's history definitely influences there Um, but it wasn't intersectional looking back the kind of feminism that was being spoken about was kind of a a one-size-fits-all and that size is white woman Um, and so as much as those conversations and that kind of education made a lot of sense and I was able to relate to it and feel kind of liberated within it. It also didn't necessarily speak to my personal experience. And, you know, there were enough black people in the school for me to have community there uh, and not feel ostracised. Like I, I'm saying this in hindsight, I wasn't at school thinking, oh my goodness, this is not intersectional. I didn't even know what the word meant then. I think that word definitely came into um, my Uh, focus and understanding much much later probably by the time I was in university so it wasn't really a problem at the time but I'm thinking in hindsight um, that's what that was um, when I was in secondary school and I think one of the biggest iterations of that was for A-level we studied the suffragettes um, and we looked at the movement of female suffrage in Britain and, and their kind of Movement to get the vote, and where that started, we went all the way back to like nineteenth all the way back to <laughs> the nineteenth <19th> century <laughs> um and then we looked uh, at their kind of the nineteen twenties um post World War one and obviously when they are granted um the vote and an equal suffrage to men um and I remember in those lessons is when I started asking the questions of like were there any black suffragettes Miss um and I remember my teacher being like oh I'm not sure actually maybe you should have a look into that yourself and um, teachers were very much like that if you asked a question to find out more they would be like I think you should go and google that extra homework yeah um so there I was trying to find black suffragettes um <laughs> and not being very successful because well I didn't really know how to even look for these things it's not like I had a access or an understanding of how archives work or really historians and what they do and their role that kind of thing that kind of came in the months following but we've skipped forward so let me go back um I just want to kind of point out some of the moments that I studied any element of black history in secondary school and I think this list is exhaustive. I think this is all the experiences I had with it um which kind of highlights how little um and how poor that experience was um but also interestingly the fact that listen to the subjects i'm learning about these histories in because it wasn't history so i think we learned about the windrush in geography and i definitely said that on this podcast before um but we saw started thinking about migration i think it was year 8 geography because i didn't do it for gcse so i would have stopped by year 9 um, and I remember seeing the Windrush and she was talking about people coming from the Caribbean. And I was like, oh, maybe my grandparents were on that ship. And I went home and I was like, oh, mom, we learned about the Windrush today. Like, did dad and granddad come on that ship? And she was like, I don't think it was that one, but they would have come on one like that. And that's where that curiosity started. But it was also parked because we never looked at it past that one lesson. It was just a thing of like, oh, there was this big migration to black people. The end. Um, I looked at migration again in economics for a level and the windrush came up but also we were thinking about it in a very economic sense of um positives and negatives of migration everything in economics was like positives negatives um and you know a very kind of black and white um argument to it uh but you know again an interesting point it not coming up in history coming up in economics and i think i've had a real love for migration as you all know because it's literally what I talk about all the time um but yeah that's kind of stuck with me when it (laughs) came to history we did the only time I remember studying black people in five years let's say year seven to nine and then 10 and 11 for GCSE was the transatlantic slave trade and we looked at America we did not look at slavery at the hands of the British in the Caribbean. Um, We looked at the British Empire, but we didn't look at the empire in relation to slavery. Um, And I think there was a lesson where we were looking, I think we were, like, rounding up our, like, empire knowledge. Um, And we had to do this, like, big question, and it was, like, was the empire force for good or force for bad? Or like, is empire something we should be proud of? It was basically asking us to evaluate whether the British empire was a positive or a negative. And I remember thinking in my head, like slavery, slavery, slavery. Like all I could hear was slavery. I was like, if we didn't have the, em- there, would no- there would be no slavery. Obviously there were other forms of slavery, but all I was thinking about was transatlantic slavery. By this time at home, I'd watch Roots. I'd watched all the films um, and I'd started reading books like Life of the Times of Harriet Jacobs, um Olad Equiano's story I knew quite well. Um, and so, you know, being told that the Empire or having to question whether the Empire was a good or bad thing, and then having people in that lesson that were like, Oh yeah, but you know, Britain's such a small island and they were able to conquer so much of the world, it was such a good thing. Look at them go oh gosh I think I would have been what 14 or 15 I was horrified even back then and I didn't even know what I know now um so yeah that was history um I learned about not necessarily I wouldn't classify this as black history but we learned about empire in the context of India in RS in religious studies we looked at Gandhi and the salt march um but that didn't come up in history it came up as religion, because we studied Hinduism for our our recourse, um, which was very interesting, actually. um, And I really did like that. And as much as I advocate for more black history, I also advocate for a more global approach to learning in schools. Um, It's very important and helps to create nice, rounded young people. Anyway, I digress. A-level history, as well as looking at the suffragettes and the movement for um, the vote, We looked at Russia and China. And again, these were kind of like the beginnings of me looking at more global histories. And this is where things started to get interesting for me. And I thought, oh, actually, this history thing is good. I didn't like hate history at all ever, but I didn't find it as interesting as I do now. Um, It's definitely gotten better the more I've been able to hone in and choose what I'm studying and pick the things I actually like. But looking at Russia and China, China, we looked at Mao's China and Russia, we looked at um pre-russian revolution the revolution and then um the cold war uh, which was very interesting to me because it was the first time we kind of thought about the way that history is written um and the way historians write history and historiography and that kind of thing um so this is where things get interesting but again no black history um on the flip side in english we had coursework um, and we got to do our coursework on anything we wanted to. And I decided to write about um, Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And that was my coursework piece. And so within that, um, we were encouraged to look at some kind of literary theory. So I got to read um, some black feminist theory. And it was I was my toe was barely even dipped into the water because I really didn't know what I didn't know at that point, but I knew I needed to include some theory. Um, And so I kind of read what was suggested to me by my teachers and didn't really go much further than that. Um, But it was a good start and it really got the ball rolling for me. Now, with the context of life at that time, any kind of conversations about race were coming from America and they were coming thick and fast. 2008, Obama was elected as uh, president of the United States. I was in about year seven or eight. And that was that was a moment, you know, as much as we might look to his presidency and, and not agree with some of the decisions made um, and the outcomes of it. That was huge um that was like you know he is his ancestors wildest dreams this is conversations about a post-racial America which you can all see is a load of nonsense now um but at that moment and in that time you know these conversations about race were very prevalent um this is obviously followed and you know one of the reasons why Obama's presidency isn't necessarily celebrated but um you know the I don't know if it was an actual spike but it was a spike in the reporting of the murders of um, black men in particular at the hands of different kinds of, should we say, law enforcement or those who thought they were part of law enforcement with the case of Trayvon Martin um, and obviously the police. Um, And in 2012 Trayvon Martin um, was murdered by George Zimmerman and I believe in 2013 George Zimmerman was acquitted um, and that's when Black Lives Matter Um, as a kind of movement started Um, and at this point I think I don't necessarily remember being all the way clued up but we were having conversations at school about these issues but as I said again all the issues about race, racism, inequality were coming from America and in the context of America and we couldn't yet articulate the similarities or the pa- the parallels with things that were happening in Britain didn't know the history myself, I didn't know the issues that were happening because they weren't really widely reported. Um, and yeah, I just was very unaware. So everything that I learned, I'd say in those school years, which are really formative, was leaning towards America. And this led me to decide to want to do African-American history at university and specialise in transatlantic slavery, which I've said on this podcast many times before. And you acute listeners that listen to those episodes I've ever done on slavery, I say I hate talking about it. And I absolutely do. And I'm absolutely so relieved, thankful and glad that I decided To not do um, transatlantic slavery as my like PhD topic or to be fair beyond second year of of university um, because it is so draining and heavy and you know it it needs to be studied don't get me wrong but it's just not work that I, I physically can do. The last thing I'll talk about educationally is probably my experience doing an EPQ, an extended project qualification. It was like an A-level where you essentially got to pick any topic of your choosing um, and you had to write a 5,000 word essay about it. So like a mini dissertation um, and you had to obviously, you know, use secondary sources and primary sources if you could although that wasn't really pushed at that point because you know it wasn't relevant for all subjects but our school kind of encouraged us to do it on something that we hope to maybe study further at uni um, and at this point I think I had decided I was going to do history or something related to history maybe anthropology or something along those lines but definitely studying things of the past um, and it was kind of at this point I first encounter the Caribbean Um, in a historical setting shall we say, Um, academically, rigorously Um, and I looked at the book um, Capitalism and Slavery by Eric Williams and this book was recommended to me by a lecturer at Queen Mary who I'd spoken to at a taster day when I was looking for a university, it was like after the open day they would invite people to taster days and you would do like a lecture and be able to walk around campus and it was like midweek and it was good because you could kind of be part of the university and have a little university experience um, as it would actually be on a day as opposed to the open days where everything's all like loud and there's flags and banners and loads of people that won't actually be there um, are around and so uh, at this day I went to a taster lecture on african-american history and slavery um and afterwards i reached back out to the lecturer that did it and i said i'm doing this epq and i want to look at i essentially wanted to look at um the reason why slavery in america ended in 1865 but in britain it ended in like 1833 um for all intents and purposes obviously not thinking about the period of apprenticeship afterwards um and all everything else but the law was passed in um 33 and so I wanted to know why there was like a 30 year plus gap in between these two um moments of of abolition um and that was a book that was recommended to me and it was at this point that I'm as I'm reading it and this is before it was republished it was republished in 2022 last year so I had to go to Birmingham Library Birmingham City Library And go there every week. I don't even think it was a book you could borrow. I think it was reference only. I had to go there after school and on the weekends and like read bits of this book and make notes um on paper because I didn't even have a laptop back then. Um and then go home and like add it to like my EPQ notes. Um and try and figure out this answer to this problem, which is what the question was for my um five thousand word essay. And you had to do a presentation on it as well. It was a really cool process. Um And it gave me a taste of what I hoped kind of academic life would be like. And it kind of has been like in many ways um, when it comes to the process of research. Um, But again, it was at that time that I realised and was kind of uh, exposed to this idea that enslavement, slavery in the context of Britain was not abolished necessarily for moral reasons, for this whole argument of abolitionists that were um you know so repulsed by the institution of slavery and wanted to end it because it was so bad and morally wrong and they'd seen the light after all these years but actually it was more to do with capitalism and the fact that actually it was no longer as profitable as free labor would be um and as the industrial revolution was beginning um actually using machines and um you know things that were being developed technologically would have actually been more economically efficient and that was the argument uh, Eric Williams talks about and it was them that I was like blown away because their people have been telling me about William Wilberforce and how benevolent he was and here here we are and the fact is actually this world is run by money and always has been (laughs) Um, and so at that moment I think is where my mind was blown and I thought, look at the power a historian has because we have been sold a lie. We have really been spun stories this whole time. So imagine if I'm a historian, the stories I can spin, joking. <laughs> That's not what I'm here for. But I realised, I think, at that point, the power of a historian um, and the also the responsibility they have to navigate these histories and retell them in a way that if there are biases they are upfront with them um, but also kind of encompasses their perspective and experiences um, and so that was something that was made clear to me at that point as well and I'll sum up my education there but at that point I decided I was going to university to study history I was going to look at um, African-American slavery um, and that was kind of that about that. But a few weeks before university started, I looked at the modules um, at the university I'd chosen, Queen Mary, and I just really wasn't feeling it because there was so much European history and I'd just done the Cold War, World War 2 I'd looked at Europe for what it felt like forever and I really didn't want to do it anymore. So I switched degrees and I switched to joint honours, English and History, because the English modules were way more diverse. There was so many more options in different kinds of literature, African-American literature, um, and things of that nature. Uh, And I would escape having to do so much European and British history. But also, the annoying thing at that point um, was that I had to take a compulsory English module that was just called Shakespeare. And it was a year-long module, and I had to study Shakespeare for a whole year. I think we studied maybe like 12 of his plays and I'll be honest I didn't really love Shakespeare I did by the end of that module because I had to I had no choice um, so yeah there was like give and take with ju- jumping over to English um, and it meant that I was, I was doing a lot of, of British and Renaissance literature um, but also it meant that I didn't have to do as much of British history so I took that trade-off um, but I guess it just shows you kind of British institutions are still very much wedded to the idea of teaching about Britain, which I'm not really going to argue with um, being in a British institution in Britain. I went through first and second year studying things like black feminism and womanism and again, African-American history, civil rights, um, transatlantic slavery and you know things of that nature and it was really really interesting and I loved it but it was finally in my second year that I was introduced to black Britain I'll say Um, and it was in a module called um, black and Asian writers from the 18th century and it was in the department for English so we were looking at novels poetry um, we looked at Olad Equiano's Slave or slave narrative, as it's kind of known as, um, we looked at documentaries like John Acampora's Handsworth songs, and I was in East London studying Handsworth, which is like where my family were from, and I was thinking, "Wow, this is so cool! I'm literally studying like something so close to home." Um, and that was the moment where I think a like flick, a flick, a light switch flicked in my mind, and I thought, "Wow, actually." there is scholarship about Black Britain. It's not just America. Um, And it sounds so stupid looking back, like, of course, there was going to be scholarship and work being done on Black Britain, but I'd just never been exposed to it properly. Um, And so it was just such a moment for me. Um, And from there, I think I made a concerted effort to to really tap into these histories. Um, But it was also this time that the story of the Windrush scandal was breaking. And as I left university and I remember writing my masters um application forms thinking about what i was going to do my masters uh, P- my masters phd my masters thesis on um I started to kind of get into this Windrush scandal and what was happening to people being wrongfully and illegally deported back to the Caribbean, even though they were British citizens and had been fought in some cases their whole life. Um, and, you know, Amelia Gentleman's Windrush betrayal had come out at that time. The Guardian were doing such like incredible journalism on the story and bringing people's stories to light. Um, and obviously, you know, as we fast forward on, 2020, the Windrush scandal report comes out under the cover of COVID. I'm never going to forget that. And I did an episode on Educate, my third episode um, on that podcast about the Windrush scandal and what had happened, essentially breaking it all down. And this is where I was thinking, I could actually do this myself. Like I could actually have my own podcast and do this about loads of different things um, that are relevant to me. But I didn't do it then. I didn't um at that point it wasn't later on until 2020 um but all these things are kind of beginning to to take shape in my mind and even during my master's I didn't really study black Britain I did some more British history uh, as you do and as you have to um but it wasn't until I actually started writing my dissertation that I started getting into um migration and I was looking at Caribbean mi- women migrating from the Caribbean to Britain during World War II and then in the post-war era through two professions, nursing and education, teaching. Um, But still, I actually hadn't ever sat down and learnt black British history. And whilst in my undergrad, my dissertation was on Caribbean history. Um, I did Caribbean intellectual history from the 18th century onwards um, as a dissertation module and special subject. So I had the Caribbean in the back of my mind, but not black Britain still. Um, And I'll be very honest with you, if it wasn't for this podcast, I actually don't think I would know as much as I do about Black Britain. And everything I've learned has been essentially from reading with a background in the Caribbean and African American history. um, But it's been literally just from what I know for this podcast. And I feel quite happy that I took this on, knowing now that I'm doing a PhD that lean so heavily into Black Britain and Black British history, considering I've actually never really been taught it in an academic setting. Um, And I think that's the way a lot of people encounter Black British history. It's it's outside the walls of academia or an educational institution like a school. It is in supplementary schools. It's through books that they pick up of their own accord. It's maybe through this podcast. And I think that speaks to our experience maybe as, as Black British people, not being able to see ourselves within the institutions that serve us in this country and having to go outside, outside of the mainstream to find and and kind of devour that knowledge. And so in the midst of all these kind of educational backstories, the History Hotline was born at a time where there was a resurgence in the Black Lives Matter movement after the murder of George Floyd Um, and in a time where COVID was raging on um destroying communities and lives um in this country and globally it felt like a moment to seize an opportunity um to educate people people seemed to want to be educated and had an appetite for these histories and these stories and so it was at that moment that I pulled back that notebook that I started in 2017 um of ideas and started talking about the things that I had in that notebook um and I started with episodes on the Mangrove of nine because that day not that day but the day I was deciding what the first episode was going to be about I'd watched the trailer for the small act series um that was coming out later on in the year um, and so I thought I'm going to get ahead of this story and I'm going to educate people on this history before the episode comes out um, and before the dramatisation of it comes out, because you're still going to need the context. Um, and, you know, it, it was a story that people were becoming more familiar with. It was something that was beginning to be part of public discourse because of the Small Act series. Um, and so it was important, I think, for me to to start with something that was such a great story in itself, but also would become recognisable um, as one of the key events in in Black Britain. And as this as this podcast has developed, we've gone before and beyond the Windrush uh, generation who um, I speak about less and less now, I realise. But I think it's because at this stage of my PhD, I'm actually thinking a lot more about 19th century history. Um, And so I find it a lot easier to talk about on the podcast things or in whether it's chronologically or geographically or thematically similar things on the podcast that I'm doing in my own research for my PhD. Um, it just saves my brain from being split across too many different time periods and time zones. Um, so that's kind of the way things have been going the last six months of my PhD. Um, and I'm sure as I get into kind of the post-war Britain part of my PhD, we'll head back there and start hearing a little bit more about that. Um, but essentially, that is, I guess, the story of the history hotline in many ways. Um, and it's continued. It's continued for 100 episodes. Um, and hopefully it will continue for 100, maybe 200 or 300 more. Who knows? Who knows if I'll run out of things to talk about? Um, or maybe one day I'll just lose my voice from talking so much because who'd have thought I could talk for 40 plus minutes about my own personal history? Um, yes, I've managed to do that. I've come a long way. Um, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank everybody that's been part of this History Heartline journey. People that have supported this work, that have listened to episodes, that have shared them, that have told a friend to tell (laughs) tell a friend um, by word of mouth or on social media. Um, It always astounds me how many people, when I look at the analytics, how many people actually search the history hotline or i sent a link and click a link the things you can find from like google analytics but i often realize that it's not just socials where people speak about my podcast and i'm really grateful for you if you're at work or with your family or you know talking about the history and the things that i say on this podcast um to share and to further promote it i'm truly truly grateful for those of you that have sent donations in via paypal and other means who have sent gift vouchers for me to buy books to further my education i am grateful for all of you um for my family and friends that are sounding boards um for the episodes a lot of the time and listen to drafts sometimes and you know tell me if i'm crazy and tell me that i can't do an episode about x y or z um thank you to all of you um, for sticking along 100 episodes deep. Um, I hope you will be here for another 100 because I am truly, truly grateful. Um, and as a way of saying thank you, I wanted to do something special. And I decided to do a giveaway. I'm going to be doing a giveaway. It's going to be a book giveaway primarily. It's going to be a book basket Um just in the spirit of, of black British and Caribbean history. Um, it's going to be some of my favourite books that have informed so many of these episodes um, on this podcast so far, um, including but not limiting limited to Peter Fryer's Staying Power, of course, um, The Heart of the Race uh, by Beverly Bryan, Stella Dadsey and Suzanne Schaaf, Eric Williams' Capitalism and Slavery, um, and a few fiction books as well that I've been reading recently that really do, I think, speak to the historical journeys that we take on this podcast every week. So look out for that on Instagram. It will be an Instagram giveaway. Um, You'll need to engage with the post in some way, um, but all the details will be on Instagram by the time you listen to this episode. Um, So again, I wanted to say a big thank you for all the support, all the encouragement and for listening every week, even when sometimes there's not an episode there this week or that week or it's late. (laughs) Um, And for the encouraging words, especially via social media and in person, it really does help because podcasting especially on my own, can be quite lonely. Um, But I always know that I'm talking to all of you guys that tune in every week. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful week. And we'll be back next week um, with, I think we're going to look at William Cuffey and the Chartist Movement. So tune in then for that. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. The History Hotline is hosted by Diana Lin Cook. Research is done by Zakia Riaz. To continue the conversation about Black, British and Caribbean history, follow us on social media at The History Hotline on Instagram and at The History HL on Twitter.